So we have spent the past few weeks describing the numerous spiritual blessings that the children of God have from him. Predestination, adoption, favor, being accepted in the beloved, redemption, forgiveness. And verse 3 kind of told us as an opening that we indeed as that Christians have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Christians have everything that they need to live lives that are pleasing to God. Verses 4 through 6, we looked at the blessings that originate with God the Father. Last week in verses 7 to 12, we focused, or the, chain, the focus changed to the blessings secured by Jesus Christ. Still with God the Father involved, of course. Going forward in verses 13 and 14, we are going to see the wonderful blessings that Christians enjoy in relation to the Holy Spirit. But before moving into those additional blessings in verse 13 and 14, I want to take a step back because I think it's critically important that we consider the audience and the intent of the letter and the identity of the people who Paul is writing to. And I think the verse that's... um, I'll do two verses. What we looked at last week was verse 12, one of the verses we looked at, uh, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So there's a group there, who first trusted in Christ. And then back in verse 1, to his original audience, we said a couple weeks ago, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And we said that's one group of people, it's the same people, the, the saints are the faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul wrote to saints. Well, not everyone is a saint. Um, And Paul didn't write this letter to everyone. So not everyone has these spiritual blessings. It's not a blanket spiritual blessing to all. In today's vocabulary, we don't tend to go around calling each other saints. Um, We call each other, if we believe the things we're going to discuss, Christian. But even that word in our country in particular has become really broad. And it may lead us astray if we don't define our terms. So I think today it's important for us to spend some time considering the basic question of this identity of who Paul is writing to and why it's important to indeed know whether you are a Christian. So I want to, my goal is to answer four questions today. What does it mean to be a Christian? And we'll repeat these before we answer them. So what does it mean to be a Christian? How do I know that I've become a Christian? What do I need to do when I become a Christian? And then finally, why is God making Christians? What is, what is this all about? Why is God doing this? So first, what does it mean to be a Christian? And we just said that in verse 12, that individual was identified as someone who first trusted in Christ. There are a lot of different terms to describe these people. <laughs> these, these uh, We said trusted in Christ, um, saints, we said in verse 1. But the Bible 
And then because, of, because it's in the Bible, uh, just culture, uh, writings, uh, just talking to people, there's a lot of different terms. So I'm going to read it. I'm just going to say a couple of them. Um, and I'll set, show you from Scripture where they began. But, of course, the meaning may be different today when you might hear them uh, brought up. So one term that we will hear is the term Christian. Acts 11.26 says, And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples, the followers of Christ, were first called Christians in Antioch. They're called Christian. They were Christ followers. So this is in Acts 11. This is, long, this is after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So these are the disciples, the followers. This isn't the original 12. This is those that were following him in Antioch were called Christian. But there's other terms that you might hear. Born again. John 3.3. 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, he's talking to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's where the term comes from, to be a born-again Christian. It's from Jesus describing to Nicodemus, who was a very uh, learned Pharisaical ruler, he, he, he knew his Bible, his Old Testament, what it meant to truly be a follower of God. He had to be born again. And our goal isn't to go into each of these, but there's a whole sermon there about what is that whole discussion that Nicodemus has with Jesus. You could be a saint, you could be a Christian, you could be someone that trusted in Christ, you could be born again. What about a child of God? Galatians 3.26 tells us, this is the Apostle Paul, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Or in Christ Jesus, actually. So, children of God. I'm the child of God. So that's another term. And these are all the same group of people. By faith in Christ is how they are identified here. So you're born again. You're a Christian. You are uh, a saint. You are a child of God. What's another term that is used for these people? They are saved. Romans 10.13 For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Born again. Saved. Christian. Saint. Trusted in Christ. What's another one? There's a lot. The Bible determined, or calls this, this group by a lot of names. The elect. 1 Peter 1, 2. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So that is Peter writing to people, and he's going to call them, just like Paul calls them the saints, Peter calls them the elect which is another word for my next uh, title, chosen. To elect is to choose, right? We elect a governor, we choose. God elects who is in this group, he chose. Second Thessalonians 2.13 says, but we are bound, this is Paul and, and, and those that he's writing with, unto who he's writing to, but we are bound to give all thanks always to God for you, Brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Actually, there's two in that verse. Uh, he, he calls them the chosen, but he also calls them brethren. The brethren, they say that, brethren. 
Brethren beloved of the Lord, (laughs) elect, saints, born again, saved, chosen. And now the final one I'm going to go, there's more probably, uh, but just as a, a decent summary, called. Those that are called. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. This is Paul again writing. He's writing unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. With all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So these terms, called, chosen, elect, uh, saints, born again, saved, they're all synonymous. They're the people that Paul is writing to in Ephesians 1. So if this is all one group of people, if we think that all these people are the same group, that begs the question, how many groups of people are there? Is it Christians and then there's... Buddhists, and then there's Muslims, and then there's agnostics, and then there's atheists. Is there multiple groups? How many groups of people are there? And the Bible is clear that the key to identifying someone, so if you're going to say, if you're going to put them in a box here, which we're going to, we're essentially classifying people, uh, we just classified ones that we would term Christian, the way that you do that, the way that you identify someone is with respect to their relationship with God. In fact, what the Bible would show us is that throughout history, there's only two groups of people. From cover to cover of the Bible, there are two groups that comprise the scriptural story. And I'm going to begin, and you're welcome to go there. Um, You don't have to. I'm going to go to Genesis 3, where it all kind of began. There's the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. God makes makes the world in, in six days, and he rests. He's made man. He's made woman. And I'm going to read the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, where we see the fall of man. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God hath made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of that tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? 
And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, So now the fall has occurred, and he is pronouncing judgment. Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And then verse 15 is we're going to spend some time. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And I'm not going to stop there. He continues on with the, the, the judgment that's going to be passed up to, to mankind. But before God judges, pronounces the curse on mankind, he's going to offer something here in verse 15. Immediately after the fall, we're seeing the identification of two lines of people moving forward. We see the seed following the serpent and the seed following the woman. Um, This verse uh, is known kind of by Bible uh, theologians. I'm not even going to say the exact phrase they use, but they're calling this the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. The first mention of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because the seed of woman is ultimately Jesus Christ, the eventual heir that will bruise the head, which essentially, well, no, which essentially it means to crush the head of the serpent. While at the same time, that heir will be bruised by the serpent. He will be injured as Jesus Christ is injured and, and, and put to death though he is raised from the dead by God. So, this, although it is speaking specifically of a coming heir of woman, a coming seed of woman, Jesus Christ, it is giving hope before, so it's giving hope to mankind before the judgment is really passed to them. There is a, if we step back, there's, there's more broadly two, two classes of people in the world that are identified here. Those that follow the way of Satan and those that follow the way of the coming Messiah. Those who place their faith and trust in God. And you say, well, you know, there's, there's the, the, the seed of woman, the seed of serpent, and these two, it says, are going to be at enmity. So there's, there's war between these two groups. And it's not just to mean it's Satan because, against all of mankind because there is plenty of mankind who essentially says, I'm on board with what Satan wants to do. It's really a line, a godly line and a, and a non-godly line that start from there and move forward. And what's interesting is we're not going to read the account, but the very next chapter of Genesis is Cain and Abel. So you see, the very, you see this being carried out in the descendants of Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel, right, they're the first two children, and they, uh, Cain rises up and kills his brother Abel. Because God does not respect the sacrifice that he brings to him. And so we see the beginning of two lines of people. Now we could trace the two lines of people throughout all of the Bible. The people that the godly line, people that are faithful to God. Even before the children of Israel are chosen, there are people that are faithful to God. Uh, We we talk about... um, Say of Noah and his family, right? They're the only ones on the godly side of the of the equation for all time. 
He builds an ark. Everyone else passes away when the, when the earth is flooded. But there's two groups that comprise all of Scripture. And those two groups are also um, present at the very end of the Bible. And so for that, I'm going to turn to Revelation chapter 20. So right towards the very end of the Bible. And this is what is called the great white throne judgment. So there's a godly line and a non-godly line. A a line that's following faith in God and a line that is not. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, we see these two groups identified again. And I saw, this is in verse 11 of Revelation 20, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whom, whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there's a tremendous judgment handed out by God in these verses. Pretty sobering one, a lake of fire. It kind of shows the gravity of what we're talking about. So are the two groups here? They are. What is the distinguishing factor between the two groups of people in these verses? The distinguishing factor is the book of life. You either have your name written in the book of life or you don't. Only two groups. Names are either there Or names are not there. Knowing which group you are in is therefore eternally important. Now I want to know that my name is in the book. (laughs) That's a good book to be in. It's a big deal, right? You want, that's a book you want to see your name. And so how can I know that? How can I know that I'm a Christian? And so that brings us to another term in, the, in, this, in Scripture, which I alluded to in Genesis chapter 3, and that is the gospel. The gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul gives us a little, the gospel in a nutshell. And just read it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I, this is Paul, declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, And wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, and now he gives the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again. The gospel, which literally means good news, 
is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose from the dead on the third day. And so that is good news. So how does it become your good news? How is it not just good news for everyone? Why are there still two groups at the end of Revelation? And Paul gives instruction on that in Romans chapter 10. When he says in verse 9, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, isn't that just what he just said the gospel was? Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on his name to save you. That's what this says. Call on his name. And it says, believe and confess. Right? It says, Let's read it. For the, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Believe means to put your trust in. And so the question is, who are we trusting in? This verse is the Lord Jesus. I'm, I'm the Lord Jesus, right? It's not just Jesus, I'm trusting this guy that's kind of, I like him, you know. He's kind of, no, it's the Lord Jesus. That word Lord means master, He becomes your new master. I am trusting him. I'm submitting myself to him and his authority. I'm not simply saying, I like that guy. I am submitting myself to his authority. It's a wonderful authority. It's not this, it's a merciful authority. We just talked about God and his authority to begin with in Psalm 100 today. We've been talking about in in Ephesians 1, all spiritual blessings. Those are that kind of authority. That's great. Call upon his name to save you. Believe and confess. So believing is trusting in. What is confess? Um, in the Greek and also the English word, uh, you know, like a thesaurus, you know, looking for uh, synonyms, it would mean to agree with. And the one that I kind of like is to own. I own that I love Jesus. I believe Jesus is much worth. I desire him. And it says, confess. uh, Let's see, back in Romans chapter 10, it says, uh, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. I'll confess him with my mouth. I will own him publicly. Why? Because I'm not ashamed to own him. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Paul will even say that in his opening in Romans chapter 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There's the power of God unto salvation. And so this, this again demonstrates there's only two, peop- two groups of people in this world. Those that have owned Jesus Christ and those who have not. And that's the bottom line of, of what it is to be a Christian or a saved person or an elect person or a chosen person or a saint. All these terms that Paul is or others are using in scripture. But then the question becomes, okay, I've thought on this. I, I, it sounds good. I, 
I'd like being in the, I want to be in the book of life, but how do I know that I've become a Christian? The natural next question is how, how, to be know, how to know you've made this next step. Now, from God's perspective, God looking in on the situation, if you have trusted his son alone for your salvation, then your eternity is secure. You're all set from God's perspective. And that's called the doctrine of eternal security. You are secure for eternity from God's perspective if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ. And you say, well, why? Well, it's because God is the one that secures your eternity, not you. Philippians 1.6, Paul tells us, being confident of this very thing, that he, God, which hath begun a good work in you, person who's claiming salvation, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that's a coming day of Jesus Christ when he rules and reigns. That God's going to work this salvation out in you forever. In fact, Bible, the Bible calls Jesus not only the author of our faith, but the finisher of it in Hebrews 12 too. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So from God's perspective, there's no question. Once you've placed faith and trust in Christ and you are saved, you are born again, he is securing you and you will not be lost. And he knows that you are his. But how do I know that what I did... When I said that I believed and I trusted in Christ for salvation was what God required. How do I know that? God knows who's, who's in the book of life. What about me? And really the bottom line to our assurance of our salvation is our endurance in our salvation. And this is why another name, I said eternal security, is something that your, your eternity is secure God, if you are saved, you will not lose your salvation. Another name for that doctrine or the same idea, it is sometimes called the perseverance of the saints. The saints will persevere. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 13 says, But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. The book of Hebrews um, is a lot, has a lot to say about the fact that the identifying fact of people that are truly born again is that they, their, their faith endures, that they don't lose it. Hebrews 3.14, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Hebrews 10.39, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So if you have saving faith, you will never lose it. However, this type, it's, it's, it almost feels like a paradox, but it's not. This type of saving faith never simply assumes that it's all set and no longer strives for God. It says, I am saved, I'm born again. I'm elect, I'm going to sit down, retire from thinking about God anymore, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. 
That type of, the, the type of faith that is saving faith never simply assumes it's all set and no longer strives for God. That type of faith endures, always taking care not to falter or to fall. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1 says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Scripture, right? Lest at any time we should let them slip. So then is the question, is the, is the Christian supposed to spend each day then worried about whether or not they're saved? No, they're not. However, the Christian should spend each day asking God for the grace to persevere in faith for another day. Because the moment we take our eyes off of Christ and put them on ourselves to run the race, that's proud. It's when we fall. And the Bible doesn't leave you alone in that. It doesn't say, well, hope you, you know, hope you feel confident because it's up to you. It's not. The Bible gives you many helps to build your endurance and your assurance. And we've seen some of them. But there's an entire letter, epistle for that. It's 1 John. It's a letter that the Apostle John wrote. And at the end of his letter, he tells us why he wrote it. He said, these things, and uh, this is 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. What if you didn't write, read his letter? You might have some doubts. <laughs> doubts might creep into your life more. But he wrote something so, so that you would know that you have eternal life. And, and throughout that letter, John describes kind of the hallmarks or the trademarks of what Christian living looks like. If you hate your brother, it doesn't look good. That, doesn't, that isn't what Christians do. If you love your brethren, then that's, that's consistent with a life that is a Christian life. If there's, that's just one example. But he goes through many different examples of why the, 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 that, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So John gives marks throughout that letter what a life of, true, what a, life of a true Christian looks like. And it's a wonderful lens to look at our lives through and see where we may need to make adjustments. He even says, you're not going to get perfect. You're not going to automatically, you're not going to suddenly be at this sinless perfection. There are people that teach that, um, but it's heresy. Because he says, if you say that you don't sin, then you're a liar and you don't have God, you don't have the Holy Spirit within you. So that's a little bit about what is, what is a Christian how do you become a Christian? How do you know you're a Christian? Next, we ask the question, what do I need to do when I become a Christian? I look at my life, I say, I have believed, I have placed my faith and trust in Christ. I was genuine when I did so, and my life is, is consistent with that. What do I do? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, if that's the case. But the Bible also tells us what to do next. Um, in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the New Testament church, just two verses in Acts 2, 41 and 42, it's kind of a list, honestly. It's an intro list of things to do. Acts 2, 41 and 42, Then they that gladly received his word, 
So he's identifying someone. Those that gladly received his word, those who are written in the book of life, those who are saved, Christians received the word of God gladly. They that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So these verses have a couple things. Well, one that's pretty straightforward from the start is they were baptized. The first step following true conversion is the step of what we call believer's baptism. And this is why we call it believer's baptism and not just infant baptism, not any other type of baptism. Because this says they that gladly received the word were baptized. The Bible is very clear that you should not be baptized until you believe. And it's also clear from this that baptism itself does not save you. However, it is a command of Scripture for believers to be baptized so as to identify themselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what did they do after that? They were baptized. Okay, now what? And the same day were added unto them, about 3,000 souls. So if they're added unto, what were they added to? And we're going to argue that they were added to the church. Church membership is another requirement, another step. They were added unto them. And they also, it says in verse 42, not only did they continue in the apostles, but doctrine, but they continued in fellowship. They didn't become Christians and then go, go hide themselves in a cave. <laughs> they become monks. They were fellowshipping with other Christians. They were added unto a group. That group is their church. They need to join a group of believers. Why? For scriptural teaching and preaching, as well as fellowship, mutual encouragement, and accountability. What else did they do? They that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That would be a busy day in this little church here. (laughs) And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine. They studied their Bibles. They studied doctrine. They continued to learn the word. Because at the time of salvation, we don't know it all. Even the day before we pass from this world to the next, we don't know it all. Salvation brings with it, which we haven't talked about at all really today, but it comes with it, and we'll actually talk about it, Lord willing, next week, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. We get the Holy Spirit within us. He will give you spiritual insights into Scripture. So you need to study it, and He will reveal to you things that will help you live a life that's pleasing to God and pleasing to yourself. What else did they do? They continued in steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and, and prayers. Well, the breaking of bread here, um, if, if we consider it in the context of all of Scripture, it's not our goal today, but we believe this to mean this is communion. This isn't just that they got together to have food all the time, um, although they probably did some of that too. Uh, breaking of bread, communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, we call it. It's an ordinance commanded in Scripture. There's a big description of it the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So we believe in two ordinances in 
this church. One is baptism, believer's baptism. Secondly is the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. And in that ordinance with the, 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 the cup and the bread, we remember what the Lord Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. He shed his blood, the cup, the grape juice, and, he, and his body was broken, the bread. And it's the, it recognizes and remembers the tremendous price paid by his body as well as the precious cost of his shed blood. And then finally, prayers. <laughs> Again, just like the fellowship, this means you're not going to do this alone. You're not going to get saved and then I don't need to talk to anybody about this. You, one, the one you absolutely have to talk to is God. You need to recognize the source and power and strength of, that, that God has and call on him daily. Not only making requests, but like we saw in Psalm 100, you praise him, you thank him, you, you say that he's merciful, you, you recognize his attributes. You thank him for his salvation and his grace. You do petition him for the salvation of others, for things in your own life. And there's one more key word in those verses that, that describes the Christian. I'm going to read it again. <laughs> then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued. They didn't do it once. We don't get a little Christian checklist on day one and then we fill it out and then we're done. While baptism does only happen once, and the Lord's Supper is normally taken not daily, but maybe monthly or semi-annually, some, some regular interval, but not every day, the Christian life requires dedication and exertion. It's how we grow. It's how we will accomplish God's design for us, increasingly bearing the image of his son. He wants us to look more like Jesus each day. We don't do that by sitting back and doing nothing. Romans 8.29 says, For him whom he did foreknow, God foreknew Christians, he also did predestine uh, to, become, to be conformed to the image of his son, to look like Jesus that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay. So there's one more question I want to examine that puts these first three questions in the proper perspective. And that question is why? Why is God making Christians today? And go back to where we have been studying in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 12. We have been looking at the, the idea of those who first trusted in Christ. That's the identity. But there's another part of that verse. That we should be to the praise of his glory. <laughs> God is not making Christians because he's been so impressed with us in this world. And he wants to show us how much that we mean to him. That's not it. God is making Christians so that we will bring him more glory. It's all about God's glory. When Christ came into the world to save sinners, God's glory was pronounced. Luke chapter 2 in the Christmas story. For unto you, this is, this is uh, um, 
Paul, I'll just read it. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you, talking to uh, the, the shepherds. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Great job making Jesus. No, that's not what he said. Oh boy, good here, you know, mankind, you have been great. No. And suddenly there was an angel with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, an, an army, and just a huge group of angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. We do benefit from glory to God. Yes, we do. But the goal is the glory to God. At the end of time, at the very end of time, we saw it in Revelation 20, there's still two groups. And while not every person will become a Christian, there will be a time in which everyone recognizes Jesus Christ is the Lord. They will not claim him as their Lord, but they will recognize he is the Lord. And that will bring God glory. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. In our lives of Christians, the ultimate aim is the glory of God. First Corinthians, uh, Paul in First Corinthians says it's all the way down to what you eat, what you do. First Corinthians ten thirty one: Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. So, what is this glory that we are seeking to put on display? What is this glory of God? And to put it more fully into our minds, I want to close with. Uh, the original vision that the prophet Isaiah had when he was commissioned to be a prophet of God in the Old Testament. I'm going to just read these. This is in Isaiah chapter 6, if you're interested. Opening of Isaiah 6, where it says, this is Isaiah speaking. So he's a prophet of God, an Old Testament prophet. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting on a throne. So this is a vision that Isaiah had. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. And so we're seeing these angelic creatures. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. And with twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. So what does Isaiah do? He sees this incredible vision. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, I, I can't, I, why am I even here? 
Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth. This is a vision. And said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. So he's commissioned to be a prophet with a vision of the glory of God. This life is not about us, it's about God. I checked the calculator this morning. We're up to 7.96 billion people in the world. 7.96 billion people in the world, and the Bible tells us that each one of us were made in the image of God. 7.96 billion little images of God. I heard this from a preacher in the last week or two, but... That gives you the sense that this is not about us. The image is the image of God. The world is about God. And so, our, so I close this morning now with a, my questions for you based on these questions we've answered today. The first question is, are you a Christian? Are you saved? Are you born again? Have you gotten past what our culture or our country says about what it is to be a Christian to what the Bible says being a Christian is? Second question. Are you doing what you should be doing as a Christian? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And thus our love for our Savior is demonstrated by our obedience to him. And the question then is, are you obedient? And it's a question for you and me both. Third question. Do you meditate upon the glory of God? Do you consider the glory of God? Is it your motivator and your aim to glorify God, to recognize His glory, to share His glory, to enjoy His glory? Because He is glorious, as Isaiah saw. (laughs) Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And that's not any less so today. Yes, we're in a fallen and sin-cursed world, but God is still glorious. And in fact, even despite sin, he is carrying out his glorious plan. And so next week, Lord willing, we will return to the wonderful subject of spiritual blessings and specifically the spiritual blessings that have been, that are related to God and his Holy Spirit that are given to Christians as we've described today. Let's pray.